You have reached the voicemail box of Speed Dial with Ira Madison III and Doreen St. Felix. This week, we talk about gentrification, the cult of Steph Curry, and Amber Heard's accusations of domestic violence against Johnny Depp. This is Doreen. Leave a message. At the tone, please record your voice message. When you are finished recording, you may hang up or press pound for more options. Hey, Doreen, this is Ira. Um, I was just in San Francisco for Memorial Day weekend, and let me tell you, white people really love Oakland, but only when Steph Curry is playing there. Give me a call back. So, Ira, I heard that you were in SF this weekend for Memorial Day. Yes, I was. So before we talk about whatever foolishness you had to deal with, I want to talk about my trip to San Francisco, which was like two months ago at this point, because, you know, I'm a hustler. I was doing some work on the plane. And at that point, I was, you know, I was doing that tour for Pop-Up Magazine, where I was like going over the country doing, you know, this like five minute reading or whatever. So I was writing and reading and researching about head wraps on the plane. And this isn't even like you know, burkas or anything. These are just like head wraps that hood girls, hood black girls wear to sleep. They sell them at Rainbow. Exactly, like the rainbow, the strawberry of head coverings. <laughs> I was like looking at these pictures of women in head wraps and this white woman, I just felt her, you know, looking over my shoulder. I felt her kind of assessing what I was doing and feeling uncomfortable. And she like basically asked me if I was Muslim. And I was like, wh- like, what is going on here? And I looked, you know, at that point, I just like took a sense of my surroundings and I realized, of course, that there were like, I might have been the only person of color on the plane. I definitely was the only black person, but you know how sometimes you can't tell if somebody's POC. Mm-hmm. And it just like, I would, I hadn't even landed in this city yet, but I already felt the San Francisco energy. And it was like very toxic and not good. And of course, when I actually landed, it was just one of the whitest places I've ever been to in my entire black ass life. Well, like when I was en route to San Francisco, I flew this time too, because I was like, I've been trying to embrace casual luxury in my life lately. Um, <laughs> I've been getting massages and facials, um, you know, taking care of my skin and quitting Do smoking. Um, And I was like, you know what? I don't want to spend eight hours driving up to San Francisco like I usually do. I want to fly. You know, it's a cool, like, less than an hour and 20 minutes plane ride. I'm like, this is dope. Just get me there quickly so I don't have to deal with, like, my whole day being ruined. But I was reading Margot Jefferson's Negro Land Uh on the plane. (laughs) And this white woman next to me was like, um, oh, have you heard of um, Ta-Nehisi Coates? And I was like, I've heard of him. <laughs> uh, and she, you know, started talking to me about, like, you know, social justice and how she thought it was great. Um, and, you know, like, she loved how, like, I was getting involved. And I'm like... Since you're really doing a lot right now, um, and you're making a lot of assumptions, and I also had an inkling, and I was like, have you read um, 
Margot Jefferson before, and she was like, um, oh no, I just thought from the title that the book, you know, was about social justice. And I'm like, okay. I mean, the book is called Negro Land, but my first inclination would be that, you know, it's some sort of science fiction fantasy novel, you know, (laughs) set in a place where white people don't exist. (laughs) My last conclusion to jump to just from seeing the title and never hearing anything about it would be this is a book about social justice. I hate the way black memoirs are always kind of funneled into they have to be social justice because the author is a black person and Margot Jefferson's book I know you're still reading it but it's about growing up in Chicago and it's about beauty and all these things like it's totally different from what ta Coates does in his memoir but don't mm-hmm. trust a San Franciscan Franciscan is that what we call them don't trust a San Franciscan to be able to tell the difference <laughs> But yeah, how was the city when you got there? Because um, I visit San Francisco all the time. And I know it's, you know, a sort of white Mecca, but I also live in Los Angeles and (laughs) go to gay bars here, which are 80% white. So I'm never shocked when I go to San Francisco and there's a lot of white people. I mean, I'm also from Milwaukee. My default is being surrounded by white people. Ira, you've lived a hard life. Um, I'm I from have Brooklyn. A very hard knock life. That's not my default at all. And I spent a ton of time in Haiti growing up, an entirely black country. So I still get uncomfortable when I'm like the only black person in a space. And in San Francisco, it was that almost all the time. In the hotel, at my actual performance, there weren't many black people there. And then also when I went to dinner at one of those weird, like, gastronomy places was no black people in there because the food wasn't good um but (laughs) i just it to me didn't feel like a real place like if you only see one kind of person in a neighborhood or a city or a town even to me it just feels like you know somebody came in and cleansed everybody out and this place doesn't really have a culture And that was my impression of San Francisco. I was only there for two days. So I don't want to get like weird San Francisco stands in my Twitter mentions if you guys exist. Listen, like take my opinion with a grain of salt, but I didn't like your city. I definitely get it, you know, because like San Francisco even has a large um, Asian population. And I did not even see that many out, you know, when I was at bars in San Francisco. I definitely saw more than I tend to in Los Angeles, but it was still Mm -hmm. the majority of the people in the space, you know, just happened to be white. And it's, you know, I've never really felt more just sort of aware of my body than when I'm in San Francisco. I mean, I like it. Um, And it's a nice little getaway from Los Angeles, but it's, Still weird to me that I feel more black and comfortable in Los Angeles um, than I do, you know, in the Bay. Yeah. And like San Francisco has a reputation for, you know, the population being like extremely educated, like more left than other like very white cities. But 
there, I feel like there are things going on parallel to what San Francisco is doing as a city that make you feel like maybe this is kind of intentional. Like, you know those apps that are being developed in Silicon Valley that are like the snitching apps, essentially neighborhood watchdog applications where people can just like report on like quote unquote weird activity going on in neighborhoods. And of course, this is an app that would criminalize like black people, black behavior and all those things. And I just think that Techie people need to take responsibility for the ways that their behaviors mirror, like, scary, racist white people. Like, for me as a black person, I know that, like, I'm supposed to take the differences with a grain of salt. But if, like, what I see is actually very similar, like, why should I feel, like, more safe in uh, like liberal city like San Francisco than I would in some place that was more like virulently or obviously racist. They're not interested in maintaining a diversity of like income and industry in that pocket of California. It's just like very monocultural and stuff. And then look what that culture is like creating. It's creating Peter Thiel, like that guy who basically has been running a clandestine lawsuit against Gawker for years. And can I say, he is crazy, but I also respect the game. Because that, <laughs> that is some days of our lives shit, if I have ever seen it. And I am fascinated by evil geniuses. He is, he is gay, but Republican and donates money to anti-gay conservatives. He hates Gawker. Um, he's funding like Hulk Hogan's defense. It's like he is all over the place and he is like literally like a scripted villain on a soap opera. He's on his Emily Thorne and he is just like destroying everybody in his path. And that is, you know, entertaining to sort of read and look at, but you know, also it's ramifications are scary, you know? There's always ramifications of like, you know, white people with money just sort of doing whatever they want, you know? Whether that's, like you said, through creating snitch apps or like even innocuous apps, you know? Like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter are designed to like connect all of us in the world, but like not since using (laughs) Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter has it been so easy for like racists to have a direct line to me 24 Mm seven and just say whatever crazy shit they want, you know? White community is a scary thing. As much as Peter Thiel like fascinates me, um, I also just like, as a journalist, his evil genius needs to be squashed. Like somebody, I don't know. I might ask my auntie back in Haiti to like say a little prayer for him, if you know what I mean, because we all need to keep our jobs. And he's setting like a very dangerous precedent and Peter Thiel is bad. That doesn't mean I'm going to say Gawker is good, but journalism is good. And so we should all defend that. Hey everyone, it's Doreen. If you want to be featured on Speed Dial, leave us a voicemail at our hotline number 424-354-9335.
Speaking of these white people in San Francisco, you know what they really love? <laughs> Steph Curry. San Francisco was like alive for this game. Oh my God. So like, you st- everywhere Yeah, you're went. right. You stayed. You didn't go back to LA last night. So you no, were still yeah. there. It was, um, they were just like, well, and I was there for the first game too, mm-hmm. um, the one that was on Saturday. Which was game six, and then last night's game yeah, was, was game, game seven, seven yeah. of the Eastern Conference Finals. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't mean like fir- like first game ever. You know? <laughs> like I didn't think there were like hieroglyphics of the game. Um, <laughs> I just meant the first one when I got to town Saturday night. You know, it was just like every restaurant was packed. You know, with like white people watching the game, like mm-hmm. everywhere. Because let me tell you something. People love them, some Steph Curry. And it's like, I feel like there's this weirdness of like loving him so much and like also like how light-skinned he is. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's like you can really love this black person, but like you don't have to love like all this black stuff. You know, like, he and Aisha are very demure. They're very church family. Very respectable. Yeah, you know, they're like the new, they're the new Huxtables, you know, without the rape. (laughs) You have so many amazing sound bites in this phone call this week. But, I mean, (laughs) it's really like, it's there. That shit is totally there. From the minute I saw, you know, the family photo of the Currys, it's like Steph with his siblings and his parents. I was like, wow, like I've never seen such a light skinned black family like in my life. Like they really are keeping it yellow, which is just like maybe that's an intentional choice. Maybe not. That's not really the point. But I do think like when you look at the treatment Steph Curry gets, which is just like reverence all the time and like who is this like magical, beautiful Negro as compared to people who have been around longer. LeBron. Like LeBron. It's just like, y'all don't see what's happening here. I don't understand as somebody who's just like now entering the basketball realm. I don't understand that double standard. And I can only really, I mean, I'm sure there are all these other factors, but to me, colorism seems like one of the primary ways to explain what's happening there. It is, you know, it's like it's easier for someone to drag, you know, LeBron or, you know, not even just basketball, you know, it's easier to drag like a Cam Newton. But it's just Mm -hmm. like there's rarely, if any, you know, that much vitriol thrown towards Steph, whatever he does, anything, you know? It's true. Even recently, you know, like in last night's game and stuff like people were commenting on him being a little bit more buck than he normally is they were like oh you know Steph Curry is being maybe like overly aggressive but it's nothing compared to the to what LeBron gets but it's not even just Steph Curry either like there's Clay Thompson who you know was becoming an even bigger star this weekend like I saw just as many people talking about Clay um and the work that he did in the game as they were Steph and what's funny is Clay is just as light skinned as Steph. I don't know. Clay might be on his own level. 
Like, I thought that was a white man. I was informed that he is not. I thought he was like the reincarnation of John B., you know? <laughs> okay. I, I can Everybody see know that, who John I B. is. I have this I definitely very, thought John B. was black at first. Uh, John B. was a rhythm and blues singer in the 90s who was white. And I have a very vivid memory of him being on BET's. Um, there was a countdown of like top five blue eyed soul songs. <laughs> mm-hmm. And John B. and Justin Timberlake and like Tina Marie were on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just like, I don't even know. I think we need to invent a term for the, the light skinned male phenomenon in basketball, Ira. What would we call it? Um, <laughs> like the Drake list. The Drake lit? John B. Ball. <laughs> <laughs> John B. Ball. I love it. It's done. <laughs> that was shout out to our producer, Michael Catano. He came up with that. John B. Ball. <laughs> He's a white um, ally. That's a white ally if I've ever seen one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's like, it's just very interesting to me that there are two men at the center of a game who are excelling and being like their bad selves and they're not getting any, you know, sort of flack from it. Um, It's just very weird in this social media age, you know? It's like, even Michael Jordan used to get people who were mad at him. Well, I mean, I think there's also a whole sub layer of, you know, the like, totally deep straight male homoeroticism thing like I think so many of their fans are just like in love with them and don't know how to process that I mean when I talk to like guys about Steph not so much Clay yet but I'm sure it will be like that in the future it is like I'm getting very deep you know undealt with feelings well I mean like just thinking about the memes that are online um about Aisha Curry, um, Steph's wife, um, and the fact that, you know, she tweets openly about how she likes to dress demurely for her man. Um, She has a cooking show. You know, she's very, like, respectable, as we said before. And the droves, the amount of, like, straight black men who are always quick to bring up Aisha Curry when talking about how, like, a woman should be acting for her man, it's almost like, do you want to be Aisha Curry? (laughs) Oh, my God. Do you wish that you could cook dinner for Steph? (laughs) I mean, I'm sure all of them would love to cook dinner for Steph and maybe give him a little dessert, too. (laughs) His (laughs) breakfast, his dinner, his dessert, and so much more. You like that classic Destiny's Child reference. (laughs) So, Doreen. Yeah, Ira, what's up? I know you saw this Johnny Depp business. I couldn't unsee it. Amber heard has accused Johnny Depp of 
hitting her. And the internet had a lot to say about it. It was truly unbelievable. You know, it's just one of those situations where I don't understand why people think their opinions even matter in the first fucking place. Like, unless you're Amber or Johnny Depp, you don't matter in this situation. But people always feel like they need to, like, lean in and give their opinion and be judge, executioner, and jury and all this shit. And it's like, you don't know what it's like to be in their home. People were talking about it on social media, obviously. And at some point, I guess it became too much for the white men of Hollywood who are, quote unquote, friends with Johnny Depp. And they were like, I will not have him burned at the stake. You know, people are jumping to conclusions. I'm like, you, this is Twitter on a weekend, okay? Like, Twitter <laughs> on will a vacation move on weekend. to a <laughs> vacation weekend. We will move on to something else on Tuesday. Like, Johnny Depp is not losing money because some people are tweeting and wondering if he actually hit Amber. And lo and behold, Paul Bettany, who you might know as um, the Vision from the Marvel movies. I don't um, know her. Well, he started tweeting out, um, I know Johnny Depp and I know him a lot better than, you know, the vultures of social media. So, you know, you should think before you say anything about him and i was like did you fuck johnny depp or something like were did you literally ask him sec- that <laughs> yes i was like were you involved in a sexual relationship with johnny depp because unless you were you have no idea what your friend is capable of and even if you were involved in a relationship with johnny depp as examples like Vanessa Paradis have shown, Vanessa Paradis immediately came to his defense. People, abusers, don't abuse universally, you know? Just because somebody hasn't right. hurt you and you might have been in a similar like position in terms of being in a long-term relationship doesn't mean that that person doesn't have the capacity to do that with another person. And I think that's just like ultimately the problem with conversations about domestic violence is people are so self-centered and narcissistic and only think of how they're treated by a certain person and never even consider that because people are different someone else might get another you know kind of behavior unless you follow this person around 24 7 like the truman show you don't know what's (laughs) going on in their life which is exactly what came to mind when I saw this bullshit that was on therap.com. What was the bullshit? I don't know if you read this, but the rap had a guest column from some white man named Doug Stanhope, who hosted Comedy Central's The Man Show. Oh my God, ago. that's a joke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, normally I would say that as like shade towards someone, but no, that is one of his actual IMDb credits. He wrote a guest column for The Wrap, a Hollywood website, by the way. Mm-hmm. So like, you would think that there would be some sort of journalistic ethics going on for this um, site, but... This guest column is called, Johnny Depp is being blackmailed by Amber Heard. Here's how I know. Oh my God. Why do people publish this shit? 
He says that Amber was threatening to lie about him publicly in any and every possible duplicitous way if he didn't agree to her terms. How many times do we need to have the conversation that it's not fun to claim yourself as a domestic violence victim in public? You don't get money. It's not. You don't get paid. People don't rally around you. In fact, you get the opposite of all those things. So this weird, like, fragility thing that men have, this conception that, you know, women could, even if they wanted to ruin men's lives with accusations, is like, it's just, there's no basis for it. So Doug Stanhope can go eat one. I don't know who he is, but you can let him know I said that. Because it's just like, you don't know what it's like to be a woman in that position. And no woman wants to be in that position. And while, of course... At the moment, these are just allegations. I just hope that, you know, people just like leave Amber alone and let her do whatever she needs to do to get out of this situation. You know, I don't really know homegirl, but I actually really do wish her the best because I can't imagine what it feels like to be sort of like a middling unknown actor um, pitted against one of the most beloved you know, I would say actors ever to grace Hollywood. Yeah, and like statistically speaking, like it'll be harder for her to get work after this. Oh yeah, absolutely. People will be like, "Oh, we don't want to work with Amber, you know, she's trouble." You know? And um I just want to shout out Andy Richter who tweeted about the situation this weekend. Andy Richter tweeted, one of the things you can pay a publicist to do is make your ex look bad in the press after you've been accused of abuse. Some publicists even specialize in such things. He didn't make a statement about Johnny Depp. He didn't make any sort of accusation. He just pointed out a very simple fact that in Hollywood, it is very easy to get your way if you have more power. And in this scenario, Amber definitely has less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just hope it doesn't come to that. I hope there's some ending to the story in which she gets to leave this marriage and also gets to still have her career, but, you know, the odds may not necessarily be in that favor. But I'm going to light a candle for Amber. Okay. Ira, it was like, this was a really great catch-up. I don't know. I always love talking to you, but this week in particular, it felt special. I'm going to go celebrate it with a shot of tequila. (laughs) I'm already drinking. (laughs) Of course you are. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. This episode of Speed Dial was produced by Michael Catano and Mukta Mohan for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV News and MTV Podcasts. You can subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes. Okay. Oh no, I'm getting the feedback thing in. I am so sick of you, Janet Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) What? Always with this feedback. (laughs) <laughs> why? why Janet cause she's the only person I know with a song called Feedback <laughs> <laughs>